Let's take our Bibles tonight and open to Revelation chapter 11. It's been a while since we've been in the book of Revelation. The last two weeks we've had some missionary speakers. That's been an encouragement. But I think it probably would be good for us to stop and get our bearings in the book here and uh, remember the, the uh, outlook or the, uh, the map of this book. Chapter 1 records the things which John has seen already. Uh, the seven lampstands, uh, Jesus uh, spoke to him. He was uh, on the Lord's Day. Uh, those lampstands representing the seven churches of Asia Minor. And then chapters 2 and 3 talk about things that, that were, the messages to those seven churches. And then uh, chapters 4 through 22, the things that shall be hereafter. Uh, some people said that uh, the older they get, the more they think about the hereafter, because they go into a room and they say, what was I hereafter? But uh, <laughs> chapters 4 to 22 are future. In Revelation 4 and 5, John described a vision that will take place in heaven. And that was a, that was a wonderful vision, the 24 elders sitting around the throne, the rainbow colors around that throne, just a beautiful sight of the, uh, of the throne of God in chapters 4 and 5. And so the, what takes place in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, what takes place on earth, chapters 6 through 20. And uh, speaking particularly of the tribulation, there's a glorious crescendo as the book continues, gets louder and louder as these events unfold. The seven seals of the scroll are opened. They have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath. And tonight, in chapter 11 here, we'll find that seventh trumpet, which is, it marks the second half of the seven years of tribulation. And then uh, in this second half, the seven bowls of wrath, of God's wrath, are poured out upon the earth. That church isn't mentioned in chapter 6 through 20. All those who have been uh, born again by God's grace will be raptured. That's talk about, told, told us about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, uh, God hasn't, hasn't appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. And then uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 describes that. The Lord himself shall come with a shout, with an ark, the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that catching up is the rapture. And so there are three great events on the timeline of history. The first advent, when Jesus became a man, the incarnation. The second event is the rapture, and the, the third event is the second advent when Christ sets up his kingdom here on earth. In Revelation 19, we'll talk about the return of Christ, that second coming. Revelation 20, the millennium, his thousand-year rule on the earth. And Revelation 21 to 22, the new heavens and the new earth. So again, that gives us the overlay of what's happening in future events. As we've moved along this timeline of the events in the book of Revelation, we've stopped periodically to uh, see passages that explain things. And we've talked about those as parenthetical chapters uh, because of the, the unfolding of events is put on hold while John shares information that Jesus is showing him to write. Chapter 7 was the first parenthetical passage. The angels were holding back the destruction until 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 of every tribe, uh, had been sealed. Um, then uh, in chapter 10 was another section that interrupted the flow of end time events. And the title that we gave the last sermon three weeks ago uh, was An Angel, a Book, and a Measuring Rod. 
And that measuring rod actually was into chapter 11, the first two verses. So we'll start in verse 3 tonight. So we come to Revelation 11:3. The chapter here tonight, verses 3 through 14, we'll read about two witnesses. And then in verses 15 through 19, the seventh trumpet sounds. Uh, that seventh trumpet, again, uh, sounded in, in this, this chapter, will end the first half of the tribulation and mark the beginning of the second three and a half years when those seven vials or bowls of wrath are poured out on bringing further destruction. Then in chapters 12 through 15, another interlude, a parenthetical chapter where, where personalities are uh, explained to us, the characters that will be here, the personages uh, in those chapters at the, in the end times. Then in chapters 16 through 19, uh, we, we come back to that chronological sequence of events that takes place in the second half of the tribulation, working our way up to the final battle of Armageddon. So the title of the message tonight, Two Witnesses and the Seventh Trumpet. Very self-explanatory uh, title for what we're looking at. Let me just give this caveat before we begin. There's a man by the name of Henry Alford who wrote a four-volume set called the Greek Testament, and he refers to Revelation chapter 11 as one of the most difficult chapters in the entire book of the Revelation. So as we come to it, there will be things that you'll still have questions about probably, and I encourage you to go into greater detail. This is, you know, we, we're, we're taking a lot in each message, and a whole chapter is a lot tonight. But let's look at the text, realizing that God gave us these words. And as believers, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. So we, we have two things going for us tonight. The Word of God, which was written for us, and the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who will help us understand it. So nothing too difficult, and I think something here for everyone, no matter how old you are, in Christ or, <laughs> or in age. So let's look at the two witnesses in verses 3 through 14. Their identity. Well, this is why I came tonight. I wanted to find out who these two witnesses are. Well, you're not going to find out. They're not named in the text, okay? Now, let me just say this. It is best to stick with an with a interpretation of literal interpretation, that is, what the words say they mean. Let's not read into it and try to make the words mean something that, that are beyond their, their normal use. There are those who try to interpret these two witnesses symbolically. That is, uh, they're not real people, but they represent a group of people such as the Jewish remnant. We have no reason to see them as anything other than two witnesses, two real people. Another indication that they're real people is they die in this chapter, and they're also resurrected. The earliest commentator, his name was Victorinus, and he identified these two, first century, you know, anybody that doesn't have a last name, you figure he's really old, okay? Uh, he, he identifies these two as Elijah and Jeremiah. Most premillennial interpreters, and we're premillennial, we believe this, uh, the Lord comes before the millennium, uh, agree that one is Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, we have the, the characteristics of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Remember King Ahaziah sent out groups of 50 soldiers to bring Elijah back to see if he was going to live longer or not, if he was going to die of this disease. 
In the first 50, Elijah called down fire from heaven, showing that God was in control, not Ahaziah, and consumed those 50 soldiers. Second group came, same thing happened. Third group came, they were a little bit different, they were repentant, please come, and, they, and he did. So we have that sense of calling down fire from heaven. Also, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, when we read these words of his prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, that sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? When John the Baptist showed up, the Jews sent the priests and the Levites to find out who he was. They were anticipating what Malachi had written about. And in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21, John the Baptist confessed and denied not, but said, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias or Elijah? And he saith, I am not. And so we have some indications through other parts of scripture that Elijah is coming, and some people say it, it must be him. The earliest Greek commentator, um, Ocumenus, uh, says that the two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch. Why would he say that? The other two men who didn't die, we don't have a record of their death. Remember, they're out there looking for him. Enoch walked with God. He was taken. Elijah taken up into the chariot. And so God took them. But the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, As it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And so people look at that verse and say, you, know, you can only die once, and then after that, the judgment. Does that mean... You have to die once? If so, that's a strong argument here. Does that mean you will only die once? Well, all those who are alive at the rapture that we mentioned, if we're alive when the Lord comes back to earth, we're going to be going without death. Won't that be wonderful? We look forward to that type of an event. But if not, we're still going to heaven. Um, also, some people in the Bible have died more than once. Uh, everyone who's been resurrected. In the Old Testament, we have the widow's son in Zarephath, the Shunammite's son, the man thrown into Elisha's grave. Remember, he came back to life. Uh, Jairus' daughter. Um, we get to the New Testament. Jairus' daughter, the young man at Nain. Lazarus, of course. Uh, Dorcas, uh, raised by Peter. And then Eutychus by Paul. And then also we have the resurrection of the saints during the crucifixion, uh, right at the crucifixion, remember, saints who were in the graves were raised. And so um, not everybody dies just once. Some died twice. Some say that these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses because they appear together at the transfiguration of Christ. Whoever they are, and you're going to come up to me and say, I think they're, and you're fine. You probably have somebody that's going to agree with you that's written a, a great book. But whoever they are, I, my takeaway is it's wonderful to know that God doesn't leave man without a witness. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, and down through the ages, the preaching of God's word that's taken place. Man is not left without a witness. God wants us to understand his word. And we're reading it. We're proclaiming it today. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish 
foolishness, but unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. So we have this witness. God has left faith, faithful witnesses for men to believe. Well, let's look at the ministry of these two witnesses in verses 3 through 6. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Remember, candlesticks are, are lampstands, as we're, we're thinking of. We, we don't think of candles. They didn't have the wax candles. They had lamps that were oil-fed. And if any man will hurt them, verse 5, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. That is, through that fire coming out of their mouths. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the day of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So they will, they will witness with God's power. Notice the phrase, I will give power unto my, unto my two witnesses. Now if we can remember back to chapter 10, um, we were talking about an angel there. Was that an angel? Was that an angel, a, a person, a, 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 an angel, or was it Jesus Christ? This is probably the strongest argument that that mighty angel is the Lord. He is the only one who can give these witnesses power, and he calls them my two witnesses. So if this is the mighty angel who's still speaking in chapter 11, that was speaking in chapter 10, that angel must be Jesus Christ. The words in verse 4, the two olive trees and those two lampstands, is taken from another Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the oil represents the power of the Holy Spirit that's given to two men. There it's Joshua the governor, and I mean, sorry, Joshua the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who's the governor. And just so, these witnesses in the end time, second half of the tribulation, will be strengthened to shine brightly by the power of God, and that illustration of that oil. So they'll, be wit they'll witness with God's power. Notice also they'll prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, some, some of you have already gotten your calculators out, and you're figuring that out. Well, if you take a month of 30 days, multiply that by 42, you'll come out to 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's a half of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. Now, just to be honest, to be honest, we're always honest when we're in the pulpit, okay? <laughs> Let me add, how's that? <laughs> Premillennial interpreters, that is, those in our camp, are split on whether this is the first half of the tribulation or the second half, that is, when these two witnesses prophesy. I'm going to lean toward the second half, and let me uh, give the support from John Walvoord, who says that. He says, the two witnesses pour out divine judgments on the earth and need divine protection lest they be killed. It implies that they are in the latter half of the seven years when awful persecution will afflict the people of God as the protection would not be necessary in the first three and a half years. 
So because of the intensity, the escalation of, the, of what's taking place and the violence and the defense of, of these two witnesses, it's probably going to be in the second half of the tribulation. I see that also by the fact that the seventh trumpet is blown right in this chapter as well. They'll also be clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth uh, was, was a rough, heavy cloth worn in the ancient world when someone was grieving, when someone was in great sorrow, when they were mourning, and also when they wanted to show humility. So for three and a half years, these two witnesses are going to wear these outer robes that display a grief, a mourning, a sorrow. And they're, they're sorrowing because of the unbelief that's in the world, because of the, the horrible violence that takes place against God's people, uh, Israel, in that second half of the tribulation. Remember, the design of the tribulation is to bring Israel as a nation back to recognizing Jesus is the Messiah. And so these two, mission, two, two witnesses are actually two missionaries to Israel. The supernatural power of God will be evident as they witness. Fire will come out of their mouths to devour their enemies. They have power to keep the heavens from raining. They have power to turn water to blood. And they have power to smite the earth with plagues. And so like Elijah, who called down fire from heaven and had the earth stop uh, receiving rain, and then begin receiving rain. And like Moses, who showed God's power in the plagues of Egypt, miraculous signs will be demonstrated through these two witnesses so that people will know they are God's messengers proclaiming God's message. Miracles in the Bible were always to validate the, the message that was being given. And so that's what's going to happen in the end times as well. We come to verses 7 through 10 and we see their death. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which, is spiritually, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And he's talking about the crucifixion in Jerusalem, but he calls them Sodom and Egypt. Verse 9, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead, dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. It says when they shall have finished their testimony in verse 7. Warren Wearsby reminds us, that God's obedient servants are immortal until their work is done. That's a great comfort to each of us. What are we afraid of? Sickness? Intense persecution? Death? If you're serving him in obedience, God will protect you until he's ready to call you home. Isn't that a wonderful thought? <laughs> What confidence that gives us. What freedom from worrying how and when we'll fall asleep in this life and wake up in heaven. They'll finish their testimony. And then the beast will step in and kill them. The beast is Antichrist. He's empowered by Satan. 
He comes from the bottomless pit, the abyss. That's the same word, the deep, that the, the demons who possessed the man of Gadara knew awaited them, but begged not to go. Remember that was in Mark chapter 5 last Sunday morning. Demons know that eternal punishment is real. Do Christians. I firmly believe if, if, Christ, if the church believed that hell was a real place, we would pray more fervently for those that are lost. We would witness with more urgency. We would plead with lost sinners to come to Christ. Hell is a real place. The demons know it. The Antichrist will make war against them. That is the two. He'll overcome them. He'll kill them. He hates their message. He's the constant enemy of those who are faithful witnesses. Here, he'll appear to finally defeat them by silencing their witness, silencing them for good. This takes place in Jerusalem, but again, the city is referred to as spiritual Sodom and Egypt. Now, Isaiah did the same thing when he opened his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10, when he talked about the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's speaking to the elders of Israel. The bodies of these two witnesses will not be buried. It's a, it's a sign of disrespect, of contempt for an enemy. They'll be left laying in the streets for three and a half days. It says that people from every nation will see their corpses. Critics used to question how People from around the world could see this until technology has advanced to where we all have one of these. <laughs> and now we understand how people will see for three and a half days these witnesses laying dead in the street. Men will celebrate their deaths with rejoicing, with gift giving. They'll be thrilled because these witnesses that have been such a pain to them and sending fire and punishing them with plagues will be finally put to rest. But, verses 11 and 12, God will raise them up after three and a half days and immediately everything changes. Aren't you glad for the power of God's resurrection? When I think of my salvation, I think, what a wonderful thing that Jesus did for me. What a change from night to day, from death to life. Verse 11, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. There will be great fear for those who see this. A voice from heaven calls the witnesses, come up hither. I believe they'll also hear the words that Jesus told in the parable of the two servants who invested what their master gave them in Matthew chapter 5. And he said to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I hope you're looking forward to hearing those words too. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Their enemies will see their ascension. What a demonstration of the power of God. 
I can imagine people looking at their cell phones, rejoicing. Oh, look, they're finally dead. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> the world mocks our message, criticizes our lifestyle, curses our Savior. And aren't you glad you're on his side? <laughs> One day the enemies will behold the power of God. God's judgment on Jerusalem, verse 13. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, again, Jerusalem. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrightened, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. At the same hour as these witnesses ascend, are resurrected, and their enemies are watching, there's an earthquake that God sends, and a tenth of part of the city is destroyed. John MacArthur points out the specific wording in the text here, especially in the phrase, in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. Literally, it says, in the earthquake were slain names of men 7,000. The word names is in the text. And he says that unusual phrase may indicate that the 7,000 were prominent people whose names were known. Perhaps leaders in Antichrist's world government. And of course, that's where he will set up his government for the first three and a half years, deceiving all of Israel and then showing his true colors at the halfway point. Well, the remnant here, it says, were frightened and they gave glory to the God of heaven. This would be the Jewish remnant who watched all this and finally realized that these witnesses had been telling the truth. If they hadn't believed it by now, they will. And again, the tribulation accomplishing God's intent that the Jewish nation finally sees Jesus Christ as their Messiah and turn back to God. A new paragraph begins in verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. We saw in, in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 12, one woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. I think I gave what those woes were, but let me reiterate tonight. The fifth trumpet marks the first woe. It was delivered by the fifth angel in Revelation 9. And there were five months of torment. That was the first woe. The sixth trumpet announces the second woe. The sixth angel, Revelation 9, 200 million demons come out and destroy a third of the population of the earth. The seventh trumpet marks the third woe. And so this is the third woe. As we're entering into that second half of the tribulation that's often called the Great Tribulation. and announces the seven bowls of wrath. So let's look at the seventh trumpet now in verses 15 through 19. The trumpet sounds, marking the beginning of this second half of the tribulation. The things that happen as the result of the seventh trumpet are not found in this chapter, but we'll find them in chapter 16 of Revelation. Here we simply have that beginning of that second half announced. In chapters 12 through 15, another parenthetical section describing those personages and then the, um, the, the chapter 16 about what, what really takes place here. So the announcement at the sound of the seventh trumpet in verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, 
And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. With the first six trumpets, there was just a single voice that announced what was uh, to be said. Now, for the seventh trumpet, we have great voices joining together in this final announcement. The kingdoms of this world. Do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus and he offered him, he took him on a high mountain, he offered him all the kingdoms of the world? It wasn't his to give. <laughs> and it wasn't time for Jesus to take those kingdoms. But now it is. And the kingdoms of this world are become, literally have become. John uses a form of the verb here that describes a future event that is so certain, that is so sure, that it's spoken of as something that has already happened, already taken place. It's a really interesting verb in the Greek language. I think of the words of the portion of Handel's Messiah, which quotes this passage of scripture. And he says the kingdoms of this world is become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So they have become, they will become his. Bible Knowledge Commentary says the fact that this will be fulfilled at the second coming makes it clear that the period of the seventh trumpet chronologically reaches to Christ's return. Seventh trumpet again signals this whole section Three and a half years of the pouring out of the, the bowls of wrath upon the world. In Revelation 15, verse 1, John writes, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now we come in verses 16 and eight through 18, and we see the 24 elders who worship God. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Verse 18, that word almighty is a word that talks about his authority. The word power talks about his ability. And that will be recognized. He has all authority. He's in control of everything. And he has the power, the dunamis, the energy, the ability to do what he says. And so this will be seen and evident as he takes the throne. And the nations were angry, verse 18. And thy wrath is come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. We've seen these 24 elders before. Their number, again, represents the people of God. Twelve Old Testament tribes of Israel, twelve New Testament apostles. And so we have all the people of God from all ages represented in these 24 elders. We've seen them all the way back to Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 5. There the, the sound and the sight of the, the majesty of the throne of God. Dr. Custer writes this, The scene in heaven, Revelation 4, 1 to 5, is unchanged 
by all these catastrophic events on earth. Isn't that amazing? All of this chaos, all of this destruction on earth, all of the suffering, all of the consequences of man's sins, and heaven still remains the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Heaven is unchanged. They fall on their faces in worship. They word their praise and thanks to God. In verse 18, the nations are angry. God's wrath has finally come. The time has come for Jesus to judge the earth. It says, to destroy them which destroy the earth. Now that's not a, a punishment on people who are unkind to the environment. It refers to those who don't pollute the earth with trash, but who pollute the earth with sin. The time has come for Jesus to judge the dead, probably the righteous dead in this section, and to reward his servants. And then we come to that last verse, verse 19. The temple in heaven is opened. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. This ark in heaven is the original ark that Moses was taken to heaven to see as a pattern. He, he made the pattern that was used in the, in the tabernacle, the temple wanderings. Dr. Custer says the ark is a symbol of the presence of God with his people. It was in the Old Testament, wasn't it? God's presence was with them in the ark. His Shekinah glory was there on the mercy seat. It not only showed the presence of God with his people, it showed the faithfulness of God with his covenant to them. And in the end, God is going to rescue Israel. And he is going to keep all of his covenants of faithfulness to them. What a glorious door is opened in heaven. And John describes these events of the future. Our hearts join the elders, thanking the Lord God Almighty, who will one day make all things right. He'll put an end to sin by destroying the guilty. He'll reward those who put their faith and trust in him. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we've said it before, we see God's wrath poured out upon the sins of mankind on this earth. And there was a place where Jesus took your wrath, took God's wrath that you rightfully deserve. That place was Calvary. Don't go on saying, I'll just pay my own punishment. I'll take God's wrath. When Jesus died in your place, come to him. Beg him in mercy to save you. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, he took your punishment. He took all of God's wrath on your sin. And you can rejoice and give thanks for the final justice of God. We'll sing in closing tonight a hymn of rejoicing. Because we've made Jesus Christ our Lord and our King. We invite any who are uncertain of that future, their own salvation, to come and talk to someone, call us during the week. But as for right now, let's rejoice 
in the, the justice of God, he does all things well. Uh, man, man's sin rightfully deserves punishment, and it will take place. If men reject Christ now, they'll see the wrath of God in the future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what you have revealed to us through John. We thank you that you have given us a glimpse into what will take place on this earth. And there's not a believer who can see what will happen, who's not burdened for someone who is not saved. And so I pray that as we go from this place tonight, we'll go rejoicing in what you've done, and we'll go with a burden for those who don't know you. Help us to be faithful in our witness and in our lives until Jesus comes. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.